Good evening. Communion, which is what we're going to take in a few moments, not three or four moments, but a little bit later on before we close this evening out. And because communion means being together, it says they were together and had all things in common, um, I'm just going to request that if you're not together with someone, if you're in the foyer uh, or just milling around, that you might want to join us and, and be together with us as we take the Lord's Supper. Jeremiah chapter 12, if you'd turn there this evening. I was thinking of maybe taking a different approach for the communion night, but as I read through Jeremiah 12 again, I thought really it, it not only fits perfect, but it segues into some deep issues that we face currently. And it's a short chapter, so it's not going to take a bulk of our time. We can meditate on definite things that have to do with the atonement of Jesus Christ for our sin. As we gather tonight to take the Lord's Supper, we know about a great catastrophe that has occurred over in Asia. It's been called the greatest disaster in modern history, where at least upwards of 100,000 some are estimating 200,000, some are estimating more. In the totality of the earthquake and tsunami in Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and other places, that many people have lost their lives. And uh, there's always at times like this, um, normally questions like, well, what are we going to do about it? And there's a gut reaction, I want to get involved, I want to do something, and, and that's good. I'm just going to say that we need to make sure that our response is prayerful, it's calculated, it's wise. It's not just a gut reaction, it's not a knee-jerk reaction. But um, at, at times of catastrophe, and I've been involved uh, during times of uh, catastrophic events like 9-11, uh, it is our nature to want to do something immediately, one, to alleviate guilt, and two, to just because we want to do something. And uh, sometimes it can actually be harder and worse on the people uh, to do something immediately rather than to do something that is calculated and wise and over time. Believe me, the need isn't going to go away in a year over there. It's going to be there for generations to come. So uh, I have gotten calls from that part of the world, and I am in touch with uh, leaders of organizations, Franklin Graham, with Samaritan's Purse, K.P. Yohanan, Gospel for Asia, and others who are um, strategizing and putting their people in place, and we will be uh, getting involved in a very intelligent and responsible way. Um, something else that happens during uh, times like this, when so many people lose their lives, we ask questions like, why, God? You're God. How, if you're in control, could you let this happen? How could a God of love allow this to happen? Why would this happen? And whenever there's catastrophic loss of life, 100,000 plus, uh, those questions come up. Well, we're in Jeremiah 12, and it's not unlike Jeremiah's predicament. And I want to describe it to you and frame it for you 
and then go through the chapter with you, at least in part, and get some of the answers to the questions because you're going to discover something. God doesn't answer that question the way we'd like Him to answer it. He answers the question. Jeremiah asked the question, but God wouldn't give what you and I would call a satisfactory answer. It's important to see why. Jeremiah is facing a predicament on several fronts. As the video clip showed, he was the the prophet during the time of revival. And I am certain that when Josiah, his friend, his compadre in the faith, was on the throne, he thought, ooh, this is good. We're on to something here. We're going to have revival. It was renewal, but it was not revival. The book of the law was found. People tore their clothes. They seemingly repented. They got very righteous. It only lasted, the commitment lasted for a very short period of time, and they went right back to doing what they normally do, which is typical. When 9-11 happens, the church is filled. When the Gulf War starts, the church is filled. People sing on the Capitol steps, and God is mentioned, and about a month later, who's God? That's what happened during Jeremiah's time with Josiah. Josiah went to battle, really, when he shouldn't have gone to battle, against Egypt. Pharaoh Necho went to the Valley of Armageddon. Josiah went north to fight with him, and he lost his life. His son was put on the throne, Jehoahaz. He was, I'm going to call him, the 90-day wonder. That's all he lasted, three months, and he was off the throne because he was taken off the throne by the king of Egypt who was flexing his muscles. He was now sort of in charge of the world at that time and deposed Jehoahaz to Egypt and put somebody else on the throne by the name of Eliakim, the brother of Jehoahaz. For some reason, and I don't know what the reason is, so if you ask me later, I'll just have to say I don't know, but Pharaoh Necho changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was on the throne for 11 years. The people didn't like him because he raised taxes a lot. Uh, He was the tax and spend king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar over in Babylon was flexing his muscles and he would soon be the world dictator. He took Jehoiakim off the throne and put... Jehoiachin in his place, a.k.a. also known as Kaniah, a.k.a. also known as Jeconiah. So am I confusing you with all these names? You ain't seen nothing yet. He was on the throne for three months and ten days. And finally, his uncle Zedekiah was placed on the throne by the king of Babylon who would be there till 586, the third attack, the third deportation of Jews from Judah to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was not a negotiator. He took the king off the throne, had his sons stand in front of King Zedekiah, and made Zedekiah watch as King Nebuchadnezzar killed in sequence each of his children, and then put out the king's eyes so that the last living memory of vision would be the death of his sons. Wasn't a negotiator. 
Jeremiah was the prophet who faced all of these huge issues. On a national level, there was catastrophe because there was spiritual compromise. On an international level, there was catastrophe because of all these kingdoms. And on a personal level, there was catastrophe because nobody liked him. Nobody liked Jeremiah. They all wanted to kill him, silence him, because he predicted that Babylon would take over and even told Judah to cooperate with Babylon and they would live. So they hated him. Even people from his own town wanted to kill him. This is another reason why Jeremiah was so much like Jesus. There's so many similarities between this weeping prophet who weeps over Jerusalem and the man hated by so many and wanted to be executed by the men of Anathoth. Aren't you glad I'm not going to give you a test on all these names of cities and kings? In Jeremiah chapter 11... In verse 18, and I'm refreshing from the month ago that we were there, six weeks ago we were in this. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, it being a plot to kill him. And I know it, for you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind, the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have revealed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them, etc., etc., Now, in our chapter, our short chapter, all of this pain nationally, internationally, and personally drives Jeremiah to prayer to ask the question philosophers, theologians, and just about everybody else in between have asked for thousands of years, why? Why, God? Verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near their mouth, but you are far from their mind. Jeremiah is bothered by a seeming lack of justice. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. It's not fair, God, what I see happening in my world. It's not fair. The wicked were against him. He had been serving the Lord faithfully for 18 years. And for 18 years of faithful ministry, there's no converts. There's no repentance. There's no response. The only response he gets is, let's kill him from his own hometown. We talk about wanting life to be fair. I don't believe that, honestly. The more I live, when people say, I just want things to be fair, I don't believe that for a minute. We don't want fairness for ourselves. We want mercy 
for ourselves. I think we want fairness for everybody else. We'd love justice for everybody else except us. I'll give you an example. Let's just say you drive down the street, you go over the speed limit. Let's say you're going 25 miles over the speed limit. Let's say it's a 25-mile-an-hour zone, you're going 50. And you pass a police officer doing 50. And let's just say, as you go, he lifts his hand and goes, waves at you like, God bless you. Now, you'll, you'll do a couple things. You'll slow down because there's a police officer, and, you, and then you'll wonder, why did he smile at me? Why weren't the red lights on? Why didn't he come and do a Yui and come after me? But let's say you go down the street scot-free. He doesn't come after you. Will you lie awake at night bothered that fairness has not happened? <laughs> Will you lose sleep and go, this isn't fair. Life is not fair. I deserved a ticket. In fact... Would you the next day turn yourself in? No. You'd go, man, I, I skated through that one. But let's say you deserve a ticket and you get one. I guarantee you, you're probably going to be, you're going to be mad. Now, you're going to be mad if you got a ticket you didn't deserve. But let's say you went just five miles over the speed limit and you got a ticket. You're angry. Where's the mercy here, man? What about all the murderers those guys should be after? Why are they picking on me? We don't want fairness for us. We want fairness for everybody else, justice for everybody else. We want mercy for ourselves. But there is the emotion of the moment. Why, God, if you're supposed to be in control, would you allow this to happen? Verse 3. But you, O Lord, know me. You've seen me. You've tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. How's that for a prayer? Kill them. I just got to tell you something about the Bible. Um, I, I just hope that when you read it every now and then it bursts your bubble as to what you think about these wonderful holy prophets of God. They were wonderful holy prophets of God. They were also men who had real feelings of emotion. And this is an honest prayer. Now God doesn't honor his prayer, God's not going to say, okay, Jeremiah, you said amen. So since you said amen and you claimed it, I'm going to kill him. Now, he will eventually punish them. He promises that. But here's a guy pouring out his heart. He says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of the field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said... He will not see our final end. God, I've been serving you for 18 years. They hate you. They deserve the ticket. You gave me the ticket. You gave them a new car. That's what, sort of what it's like. They deserve the ticket. Why would you write me one? Why are all these things happening against me? The people want to kill me and all I want to do is serve you. Why would you let the, the kings after Josiah drag this nation down to such a low level? And moreover, why would you use the Babylonians, worse people than we are, to judge us? Well, i got to tell you that uh, what Jeremiah says here is a common sentiment. In fact, it sounds a lot like Asaph. You go, who? 
Asaph was one of the worship leaders in the temple. And in Psalm 73, don't worry, I won't read it all to you, but I will read a portion of it to you. Listen to his prayer. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he describes there's no pangs in their death. They get by and they skate by everything. And it seems the good people suffer. And it seems that bad people get off the hook. Lord, I know you're good, but I got a problem with your judgments. That's what Jeremiah says. That's what Asaph says. Here's the problem. It's the same question you ask, and you could phrase it a million different ways. How could a God of love allow? It's called theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-I. That's the theological term. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving, I don't get it. How could these catastrophes happen in life? The Gallup organization polled Americans not too long ago. And the Gallup organization asked people, if you had an audience with God, if if you could meet God face to face, of course, (laughs) you will one day, but if you had an audience with God right now, what would you ask him if you could ask him anything? Number one question, what do you think it is? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering in the world? Why do you allow suffering and evil to go on? There is an expectation that evil should be punished and virtue should be rewarded. And i got to tell you something. In life, it doesn't always work that way. There's not always an immediate cause and effect relationship between sin and punishment and good and reward. Eventually, there will be. But there's not always an immediate cause and effect. That bugs people. One author puts it this way. There's a window in your heart through which you can see God. Once upon a time, that window was clear. Your view of God was crisp. You could see God as vividly as you could see a gentle valley or a hillside. The glass was clean, the pane unbroken. You knew God. You knew how he worked. You knew what he wanted you to do. No surprises, nothing unexpected. You knew that God had a will, and you continually discovered what it was. Then, suddenly, the window cracked. A pebble broke the window. A pebble of pain. Perhaps the stone struck when you were a child and a parent left home forever. Maybe the rock hit in adolescence when your heart was broken. Maybe you made it into adulthood before the window was cracked, but then the pebble came. Was it a phone call? We have your daughter in the station. You'd better come down. Was it a letter on the kitchen table? that said, I've left, don't try to reach me, don't try to call me, it's over, I don't love you anymore? Was it a diagnosis from the doctor? Whatever the pebbles form, the result was the same, a shattered window. The pebble missled into the pane and shattered it. The crash echoed down the halls of your heart. Cracks shot out from the point of impact, creating a spider web of fragmented pieces. And suddenly... God was not so easy to see anymore. The view that had been so crisp had changed. You turned to see God. His figure was distorted. It was hard to see him through the pain. 
Jeremiah is a believer with the shattered window. The pebble careened into his heart. It finally got to him and he pours out his heart. He knows theologically that God is just, God is good, but it doesn't square with what I experience, with what I see. Okay, now God answers Jeremiah, verse 5, but not the way Jeremiah anticipated. God says to him, If you have run with the footmen and they worried you, then how are you going to contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? In other words, Jeremiah, hunker down, buddy boy. If you think it's bad now, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. <laughs> Poor Jeremiah. He, didn't, he wanted comfort from God, right? He wanted a hug and embrace. It's okay, Jeremiah. You're a good prophet. We love you up here. Go for it, man. God said, Jeremiah, it's going to get a whole lot worse. And if you can't handle it now, that pebble, that break is going to get a lot worse. He says, if you run with the footman, who's that? It's the men of Anathoth, right? The guy that said, we hate him. We're going to kill him, this guy from our hometown. And then who are the horsemen? They're the men of Jerusalem. And as you go through the book, you see that the threats get worse and worse as it goes on. Usually, when a trial, a catastrophe, uh, something on the news like what we've seen in Asia, or something like 9-11 happens, or even worse than that, something in our own personal life hurts us, touches us, We usually pray for a lighter load when we should be praying for a stronger back. Jeremiah, you better pray for the right thing. I know you'd like it to go away, but you're going to need a stronger back. So here we are praying for a lighter load. He's praying, uh, he should be praying for a stronger back. And just think in your mind the last time you encountered what you would call a tragedy in your own personal life especially if it lasted a long time. I bet your prayers were like, God, please, would you just get me out of this? Would you deliver me from it? And your question on a daily basis, how can I get out of this? You know what your question ought to be? What can I get out of this? Not how can I get out of this. What can I get out of this? What can I learn? By the way, if you ever want to understand James chapter 1, you have to understand this. Otherwise, the book makes no sense. James 1 says, if anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all. Let him ask in faith. You know what the context of that asking for wisdom is? Not which dress should I wear today or which shirt looks good on me today. I need wisdom, God, to know what restaurant to eat at. The wisdom has to do with the trials of life. That's how the the whole chapter is framed is when you go through these fiery trials and you need wisdom, you ask God, God, what do I need to learn from this? That's the context of that. So, Jeremiah, if you've run with the footman and you're tired, you're going to have to work out every day, buddy boy, because soon the horsemen are coming and you're going to have to get in shape. He should have asked what he could get out of it. For even your brothers, verse 6, the house of your father, even they've dealt treacherously with you. 
Yes. They have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. God is preparing him for what's coming. Whenever the pebble comes into your window, and I'm sure right now you're thinking of that analogy and you can think of times when that pebble hit, maybe really recently, would you also keep in mind that you need to beware of those well-meaning, but I would say spiritually ignorant people who put their hand on your back and go, you know, if you're a child of God, you don't have to go through this. See, if you're a child of God and you have faith and you speak the word of faith, You don't have to suffer. Suffering is for Satan-defeated people, not God's kingdom children. So you don't have to ever be sick as a child of God. You just claim your healing or you claim your prosperity. That is a damnable thing to tell somebody who's suffering. It's a wicked thing to say. First of all, it's not true. Second of all, it breeds guilt because of all the people that have trusted and didn't get what they were told that they would get freedom from all these things. I heard about a, a guy. Well, first of all, let me just tell you a quick little story. Um, a family came to me in my fellowship. They were brokenhearted because of their experience with the church. They had recently lost their baby. Baby was born. Baby got sick. Baby went to the emergency room. The baby died. When the baby was in the emergency room, they called the elders of their church to come and pray. They came, but they noticed they were very skittish. They didn't really know how to do with this. They just said, you just claim your healing and you'll be fine and you have faith. And when the baby died and they called the elders again, the elders said, if you would have had enough faith, you would still be holding and nursing your baby. It's your fault. You did this. Their lives went from really, really bad to extremely depressive. It's a horrible thing to say. On a lighter note, there were a group of folks driving in a car, and these guys hadn't seen each other for a long time. They were all believers. One guy was into this stuff, and he was in the back seat, and one of the guys said, Hey, how's your uh, Uncle Joe? And... uh, he said, well, he's doing okay. He's, he's sick, but he, he'll be fine. And the guy in the back seat who was into this false doctrine said, never say he's sick. You should say he thinks he's sick, but don't, you don't want to say that. He just thinks he's sick, but you don't want to be a part of that negative confession. Okay, so he said, okay, he thinks he's sick. Whatever. Driving a little bit further, and a friend asked him, well, how, how's your Aunt Millie? And the guy said, She thinks she's dead. (laughs) Now, let's quickly breeze through some of these verses because in the next several verses, God himself is lamenting. He is crying. It's not Jeremiah that's weeping. It's God here that laments for his people, for the loss of fellowship with them, for the sin that they've committed and for his desire to bring them back. And he uses several different analogies, word pictures, figures of speech, seven altogether. 
He says, I have forsaken my house. That's the temple, the place of fellowship, the place that should be intimate. I've forsaken my house. I've left my heritage. It's a second figure of speech. I've given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. What a, what a picture. Like my closest friend, the dearly beloved of my soul. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. There's another analogy. Now, a lion in the forest will uh, let out a roar to paralyze its prey, and it's not a friendly. Have you ever heard a lion roar? It's not a friendly kind of a beckoning, sweet sound. It drives people away. They felt cornered. They were growling at God. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have hated it. My heritage is to me a speckled vulture. Speckled vultures in the aviary world are oddities. Other birds peck at them and push them out of the nest because of their oddity. Israel, Judah, they were oddities. They were like speckled vultures. They were fighting against the God who loved them and blessed them and gave them a land. How odd. The vultures all around are against her. Come and assemble all the beasts of the field and bring them to devour. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. There's another figure of speech out of Isaiah 5. They've trodden my portion. Look at that word, my portion. The animal kingdom isn't God's portion. Plant life, God didn't care about the plant life as much as human life. Human life. People that he created in his image, those are the ones he loves. Those are the ones that he would say are my portion They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. Desolate it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunderers have come on all the desolate heights of the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain but to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because the fierce... Anger of the Lord. So, how does God deal with the problem of evil? Tells Jeremiah two things. Number one, get used to it. You know, if you if you can't handle the footmen, the horses are going to be a lot worse. So, Jeremiah, this is life, okay? We live in a fallen world, buddy boy. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, bad things have happened. So we live in a fallen world and it's going to get worse for you. Get used to it. Second thing God says is that there's one of the reasons there's evil is these people that I'm about to judge really deserve it, Jeremiah. They were my heritage, my portion. They've turned into vultures and lions. They've fought against me. So all that I'm going to bring upon them in terms of disaster, they brought on themselves, and my judgment is well-deserved, and it's going to look like evil, but that's one of the reasons there's evil is because of my judgment upon them. And there's a third reason for the problem of evil. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back every one to his heritage and every one to to his land. Now here's the third reason. Listen carefully. Number one, we live in a fallen world. Get used to it. Number two, 
I'm going to judge them. They deserve it. But number three, it ain't over till it's over. You say, it didn't say that here in the text. No. What he's saying is, I will punish those wicked Babylonians eventually. Eventually, I'll get to the Babylonians. Don't worry about it, Jeremiah. I know you're worried that because the Babylonians are worse than Judah, <laughs> why would I do that? But I'm going to chastise my people, and I'm going to bring them back into the land after 70 years. He had said that, and he'll say it again. And then I'm going to punish those who have fought against my people, my inheritance, the land of Judah. So eventually, God will punish evil. In a few moments, we're going to pass out the elements, and we're going to consider the Lord's sacrifice, the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's greatest accomplishment in Christ the first time Jesus came to earth. At the first coming, at the incarnation, the greatest accomplishment of Christ was to atone for the sin that would bring judgment upon the world. That's why we celebrate this, because we're reading about judgment, and God is saying, like he told ancient Israel, you trust in the blood, I'll pass over judgment. That's what the atonement is all about. You see, his death for sin enabled people to get into his heaven. Why do we do communion so much? And here's the bottom line. We would not ever be able to get to heaven unless Jesus came and shed his blood on a cross, the perfect person who ever lived, the perfect atonement for our sins. Without that, we're lost. You can believe in Buddha, Krishna. You can be good. You can go to church all your life. And you and I would go straight to hell without the atonement. That's the bottom line. So the greatest accomplishment at the first coming was the cross. The greatest accomplishment at the second coming is when all of these eventualities come to pass. When he does bring in righteousness, he does reign forever and ever. And all of the evil will be punished and all of the sin and wickedness will be judged. And equity will prevail and righteousness will rule. So... The tragedy that befell Jerusalem. 700 B.C., when these prophets were running around, and then 586 B.C., when Jerusalem was leveled, and Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Can you see him outside the city? He's weeping. He's lamenting. He's pounding his breast. He sees the beloved city of God in such tragic desolation. And before and during, he said, why? How? And what Jeremiah asked, people asked, I stood at the rubble of 9-11. I pulled body parts out with the Red Cross. I informed families who we found. I prayed with family members. And the big question is why? How? And now... In Asia, there's another catastrophe. Jesus promised that there is coming a time that all of these catastrophes will seem like child's play in comparison to the Great Tribulation. From the beginning of man until now, the world, he said, has never seen that. That's sobering, isn't it? 
So how could this happen if God is in control? Let me give you one of the answers to sort of synthesize this. Because everyone dies. And I'm not being cavalier. Everyone dies. What happened to people in 9-11, what happened to people in Asia, what happened to people in Jerusalem isn't anything more than what was going to happen to them already. Right? We're all going to die. Nobody gets out of this alive that I've ever met. The statistics are still the same. Every one out of one dies. Now, some of us may die through a disease. Some of us may die through a heart attack. Some of us may die in a plane crash. Some of us may die in a car accident. Some of us, there's a lot of ways people, but everybody dies. Maybe not all at once, but because it happens all at once, we go, how could a God of love? People die all the time. And people will die because of the result of the fall until Jesus comes again. It is appointed unto every man once to And after this, the judgment. Hmm. So the big question isn't, am I going to die? The big question is, am I going to heaven or hell? Isn't that the big question? Isn't that the biggest question in in life? Isn't The biggest question is, where am I going to spend eternity? It's appointed to every man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Jesus gave an answer sort of similar to this that I'm sure his disciples didn't like and the people around him didn't like because it was the problem of evil question. It's in Luke chapter 13, I believe. Don't hold me to that, but it's around 12 or 13. And uh, here, here it is. They asked Jesus about two incidences. One was the fact that Pontius Pilate had hacked people who were worshiping in the Jewish temple and offering their sacrifices... And their blood was mingled with the blood of the animal they were sacrificing. During their act of worship, they were killed and hacked to pieces. And they were wondering, why would a God of love allow that? Another incident was a tower outside of Jerusalem fell down and killed a whole group of people, 18 of them, killed instantly. And people were saying, why? And Jesus said this to both incidences. The tower that fell on the 18. Do you think those people were worse sinners than anybody else? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, it could happen to you. You would likewise all perish. And those whose blood Pilate mingled with the sacrifice, do you think that happened because they were worse sinners than all the rest? No, but I'll tell you the truth, unless you repent, it could happen to you. You will likewise perish. So we close off the chapter, and it shall be if... That's the mercy of God in the midst of judgment. If, that's the biggest word in this chapter, by the way, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. Did you get that promise? Do you understand that what God is saying is he's extending a promise to the nations outside of Judah, outside of Jerusalem, who are pagan worshipers, who have all sorts of different gods and goddesses, the pantheon of deities that they worship. And he's saying, I'm going to give them a chance to change their gods. Any nation, I'm opening invitation. If you want to change your gods and follow me, I'll receive you and forgive you. You want to hold on to your idolatry, judgment is coming. Now understand, this is the heart of God. 
God loves to do two things. Number one, he loves to forgive. He loves it. You know how I know he loves it? Because the Bible says when one sinner comes to him in repentance, all the angels of heaven have a party, loose paraphrase. All the angels are going, yes! They love it. And God loves to restore. God loves fixer-uppers. God likes to take those people that the rest of us would go, there's no hope. It's too beat up. God likes to find a junky old life and say, oh, a little bit of polish, a little bit of grease, a little bit of time. You know what a 57 Chevy looks like fully restored? You can take any car and hold it up to a fully restored 57 Chevy. Can't hold a candle to it. There's something about a classic. That's what God likes to do. He likes to make classics out of broken lives. He loves to forgive. He loves to restore. Johnny knew that. Johnny Newton ran away from home when he was 17 years of age. His mom taught him the Bible growing up his whole life. But he wanted to be a sailor, and he eventually became a sailor. But his mother died at a young age. He was heartbroken. He turned to the evil side. He got so bad that he wrote in his memoirs, as if he was boasting that he could swear, curse, for two straight hours without repeating himself once. He became an alcoholic. He joined the Portuguese slave trade and sold human beings for profit. He almost died because he was so drunk and he fell overboard. Somebody saved him. He went back to England. On the way back, he called out on the name of the Jesus that his mother taught him when he was young. He became chaplain to the British Parliament. But we know him best for his autobiographical song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We're at the Lord's Supper tonight. And we can all, if we're true believers... We can all take that song and personalize it, can't we? I've always noticed something about false believers. They don't know their own sin. I'm not a sin. Who are you to tell me, young whippersnapper? Well, I'm not that young anymore, so you old whippersnapper. <laughs> you know, it's amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like him, her, them. But true believers know their own condition and their own forgiveness and their own restoration. They go... I was a wretch. I was bound to hell, but he saved me. Now, I'm going to ask you another question before we close and the communion board comes up and we take these elements. And we deal with the ultimate solution of the problem of evil. Jesus died on the cross to eradicate the sin that brought the evil on the world. And he will ultimately judge and will ultimately reign. But you ask yourself this question. Because the Bible says we're to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper and never to take this unworthily. Never to take it in a flippant manner and never to take it unless you're a true believer. And you ask yourself as we pray, have you authentically, really surrendered your life to Christ? You may be the finest, most religious, sweetest person and not a Christian. I've seen it for years. You ask yourself, do I belong to him? Have I surrendered my life to Christ wholly and completely? And if not, then say honestly and truthfully, 
would you save a wretch like me? Because God loves to forgive and restore, the answer is going to be yes. But you have to receive that. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you are so gracious. And you love fixer-uppers. Our problem as men and women is that we like to always think of ourselves as the latest model instead of fixer-uppers. We don't like to see ourselves as anything but in high esteem and wonderful, but your word tells us that Jesus was born to save sinners. Only sinners get saved because only sinners recognize they need a Savior. And thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus, the Savior, the only way, the only truth, the only life to this earth. And tonight we're celebrating the atonement, the greatest accomplishment at his first coming, the atonement, the cross. Looking forward to that second most wonderful accomplishment when you rule and reign, set up government, change everything, bring in total righteousness, settle all accounts. Thank you for your mercy. And one day we'll thank you for your justice. But tonight, Lord, you're here to extend more grace and more mercy. And I pray, Lord, if anyone has gathered here in this fellowship of believers, in this family, in this community of your children, if they're honest with themselves, they, they sense now that they're on the outside looking in rather than being true insiders. Lord, you don't want that. You want them in. You want every single person saved. You want every single person a worshiper. So, Father, would you touch any heart that doesn't know you or isn't sure? And you just keep your head bowed. And you just think about this whole moment. And if you're here, And I don't need to go into further detail other than if you're willing and ready at this point to receive Christ as your Savior. That's what it takes to get to heaven. There's no other way. That's what it takes to get rid of sin. That's what it takes to get rid of guilt that everybody has. If you want to do that and you haven't done it yet or you're not sure or maybe you did it a long time ago and it's like meaningless at this point, you want to surrender your life to Christ. As we're, we're praying, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, but just in this quiet moment, would you raise your hand up in the air so that I can see it and I'll pray for you as we close. God bless you, ma'am. Anyone else? Raise the hand up. God bless you over here to the side. Anyone else? Thank you, Lord. Lord, for those that have, we rejoice. We are so stoked because we know the angels are and you are. That's what you love. That's your heart. And then, Lord, I also pray that you would heal broken hearts tonight. As these elements are passed out, heal broken bodies, Lord. Cure diseases, Father. Heal those despondent ones that are burnt out and disappointed. Their window is so shattered. 
Help them see you clearly through their pain. In Jesus' name, amen.